Well, I'm not sure how to respond to that other than I think that I recall the conversation going a little bit differently. (laughs) But I would never want to accuse one of my fellow elders, so I'll just submit and move forward. (laughs) I am excited to be here. Um, It's been a pleasure to um, investigate God's Word uh, for the purpose of this preparation. Um, Sherry and I... He is right. Sherry and I do love you, and we love this body, and you guys have welcomed us and and, uh, uh, loved on us ever since the first day we came. So um, so we do do thank you. I do thank you for the opportunity to serve, and uh, it's been a remarkable year so far. So so let's get started. Um, So imagine with me. You grew up in a small town. Your families are good friends. In fact, they attend church together. For many years, you've been able to attend Christmas and Easter candlelight services together. And perhaps at one of them, you recognize her beauty as the candlelight flickers on her face in the pew to the right in front of you. In youth group, you begin to learn about the challenges of dating, and you devote yourself to seeking God and Scripture to take your mind off of her. Eventually, you attend high school together. (laughs) It's the only one in town. And you begin to spend more and more time together studying in your biology class. In college, you feel that she's the one that God has led you to. And you ask her father if you can date her. He reluctantly says yes, but you know he has his eye on you, wondering if you have what it takes to support his daughter. Your relationship progresses and you trust God to give you the strength to persevere, to face the challenges of your relationship, and the feelings and emotions that continue to strengthen. You feel like you love her, but you've been told that love is not a feeling, it's a decision, a decision to remain committed no matter what you're faced with. Through prayer, you're convinced that she's the one. Her dad agrees to give you her hand in marriage, and so you develop an elaborate plan to ask her. She says yes. And now begins a year-long engagement. Now the emotions really start to fly. Ultimately, you go to the Lord and ask for him to give you uh, self-control. He provides. And then one day, with tears in her eyes, and yet a peace that seems strong and radiant, she tells you she's pregnant. You know for sure the baby isn't yours. She has a pretty remarkable story. But what should you do? This wasn't what you had planned. You had hoped to build a family together, to build a home together. You thought she was an honorable girl from an honorable family. And now this. The world is telling you to leave her to deal with her betrayal alone. But what would you do? Before we look at our passage this morning, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to be here in your presence today. That through your word, you will give us the truth and the truth that you would have us here today, right now, at this very moment. We thank you for the illustration that you give us in our discussion. And Lord, we pray that our discussion will honor and bless you. Father, speak to us right now. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25. You can go to Malachi and take a ride if you like. 
That was a joke. (laughs) Follow along as I read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I've always been intrigued by the story of Joseph. We typically spend time during the Christmas season discussing Mary, the Immaculate Conception, and the story of the birth of Christ. Well, that makes sense. It's fitting. It's Christmas. And the Christmas story is, in fact, about Jesus. But perhaps we sometimes overlook the portions of the story that provide insight into the character of the man who was selected to provide or protect and provide and love Mary sacrificially. Perhaps the story and the examples of Joseph provide yet another scriptural example of how God is glorified through our obedience. Joseph's story is one that illustrates how we should live our lives in humble, submissive obedience to the will of God. Relatively little is discussed in Scripture about Joseph. We know the story, though. Mary and Joseph are engaged. Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph wants to send Mary away. An angel visits him, and he he marries her. He, He takes her to Bethlehem. The child is born. They flee to Egypt until Herod dies. Then Joseph, Mary, and Jesus return to Nazareth, where Joseph, where Joseph raises Jesus according to Jewish law, taking him back to Jerusalem for Passover. We know Joseph loves the child because he anxiously looks for Jesus when he stays behind. Remember, they leave to head back to, to Nazareth, but Jesus isn't with them, and they anxiously return. Well, I probably would be a little bit anxious, too, if I lost the Messiah. But who was Joseph? What was really in Scripture about this man's character? What can we learn from his actions and non-actions that give us insight into who he really was? Well, ultimately, I believe Joseph's story is one that illustrates a few things. It illustrates a righteous character, an attentive heart, and humble submission to obedience. Let's look back at our passage. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Betrothal is defined as the period of engagement preceding marriage. It was viewed as a binding contract between uh, two families and sealed with the exchange of gifts. During this period, the couple did not live together, Sexual relations with each other at this stage was regarded as equivalent to adultery. 
The time of betrothal was treated as marriage with the exception of the physical intimacy found in marriage. According to Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24, infidelity of a betrothed partner was treated as adultery and punishable by death. Mary's pregnancy during betrothal left her open to the charge and consequences of perceived unfaithfulness. But it is my understanding that Joseph would have had to charge her, and herein lies the challenge for Joseph. If he openly accuses her, she could be stoned to death. If he accepts her and the baby, he could be viewed as disgracing his family as well as cultural and spiritual law. But the text tells us in verse 19 that Joseph was a righteous man and that he didn't want to disgrace Mary. Now, this has always been interesting to me. Here you have a man who on the outside would appear to have been um, disgraced. And ultimately, his initial response is thinking of Mary. Joseph loved her, and despite this new significant challenge that he didn't understand, he continued to love Mary and in his heart wanted to protect her. Now, while the term righteous man can be found throughout Scripture, most of the time these references are in the form of a generic description. Now, what I mean is that a statement like uh, you see in Proverbs 13:5, a righteous man hates falsehood. But only three times, however, at least according to my looking, Only three times is the term righteous man linked directly to a person. Noah, Genesis 6, 9, Joseph from our passage today, and then Joseph of Arimathea, Luke 23, 50. Now granted, there are obviously other cases where people are described or listed as righteous. Abraham, Lot, and Moses to name a few. Now righteousness can be defined as spiritual maturity or practical holiness. Some important things to consider about righteousness include that human nature is the opposite of righteousness, Romans 3, 10 through 18. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory and righteousness of God, but we're justified by the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Righteousness is not attained by works, Romans 4, 18 to 25. We become righteousness, or sorry, we become righteous through faith in Christ, as described in Philippians 3, 8 through 9. And it says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Studying God's word helps us to grow in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Righteousness ought to characterize each believer's life, 1 Peter 2:24. And he bore and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You see, our righteousness is a result of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
It says it in Philippians 3, 8 through 9. And that gift represents our position before God. We are righteous because of what Jesus did on our behalf. In God's eyes, he sees us as righteous. Our sins have been paid for. And as a result, we are called to be righteous as Scripture directs us. This part comes from the Holy, the Holy Spirit leading us to do God's work. You see, Joseph was a righteous man, and he was being called to act righteously. But how did he know what the will of God was? I mean, good grief, this was a difficult situation. Let's look back at our passage. Verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Okay, so Joseph knew the will of God because an angel of the angel. I mean, really, if we had angels appear to us every time we had a tough decision, you think we might do a little better? Well, there's a little more to it than that. I believe that Joseph's heart was attentive to the will of God, and he sought the will of God in at least three ways. Joseph was attentive to God's urging through the angel. Verse 20 and 21 says, or tells us, that it might have been easy for Joseph to uh, disregard the message of the angel. But Joseph, being righteous by faith, would have desired to be righteous. He would have desired to be righteous in his conduct. And according to the law, he would have been justified in accusing Mary in order to protect his reputation in the community. He, however, recognizes the angel and the message as one to abide by. Joseph was attentive to Scripture, verses 22 and 23. He would have recognized the message from the angel and matched the message to the words of the prophet Isaiah that are repeated by Matthew in verse 23. So Joseph hears from the angel, and the information is validated from Scripture. Now this is important. This is not unlike uh, any counsel that we might receive. When we hear counsel from someone who uh, professes to be a believer and is trying to help us, we need to do the same thing. Let's ask the same question. Does the counsel or direction match the whole of Scripture? It's an important step of the process. If the counsel matches, then we can trust it. If not, we need to ignore it. Now, while it's not mentioned directly in the text, I think it was reasonable to consider that Joseph, being a devout Jew, would have been attentive to prayer. Joseph would have sought the truth from God through time and prayer. In fact, in his considering or planning to send Mary away, I would assume that he spent time in prayer to ask for God's wisdom and direction. What happened next, perhaps, was that an angel came to visit him. Now, because of Joseph's attentiveness, he was ready for action like a real man. Todd's mentioned several times since the summer about our trip to Colorado with our boys. You recall a sort of pilgrimage into the mountains with our sixth grade boys to initiate a journey into manhood. As a part of that process and the raising a modern day night study, there was a definition of a man offered by Robert Lewis. This definition, definition suggests that a real man rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward. 
I believe that Joseph is a good example of this description of a real man. Joseph rejected passivity. He could have chosen to do nothing, but God urged him differently. Joseph accepted responsibility for something that he had no control over. Joseph led courageously. He led his wife through a challenging situation that would have been seen by most in his culture as disgraceful. Joseph expected the greater reward. Now, I'm not sure about this one, but I would imagine that Joseph felt as though his obedience would be blessed by God the Father. Joseph was, a, was righteous in character, and he was attentive to the will of God. Therefore, he was able to humbly submit to the will of God through obedience. The text tells us, verse 24, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love this part. Joseph awoke, awoke from his sleep and did what the angel commanded. He took Mary as his wife, and when the child was born, he named him Jesus. His obedience wasn't that of diligent contemplation. The text says he awoke and acted. He didn't have to receive counsel from his buddies at work. He didn't have to set a meeting with his attorney. He didn't spend weeks weighing the pros and cons of the decision in order to determine the right course of action. No. He didn't stop to consider how obedience to the creator of the universe might affect his reputation. Joseph, the righteous man, received direction. The direction matched scripture. He submitted and acted in obedience. We already established that he was attentive to God through his study of Scripture, and now we see his immediate action as that of readiness. We see the same type of readiness in the story of Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. In both cases, these men respond to the direction from God immediately. Cornelius sends for Peter immediately. Now Peter at first is perplexed by his vision, but ultimately, when he is told to go, he goes, without hesitation, to a Gentile's house. You see, like Peter and Cornelius, who both, by the way, had their visions during prayer, Joseph was obedient because he had determined long before the issue that he would submit to God. He didn't have to decide at this particular moment whether on this particular issue he would submit to the will of God in obedience. Because of his faith, submission was a given. You see, our tendency toward pride and sinful selfishness is a part of depravity, and it gets in the way of doing the will of God. A responsive obedience, now listen to this, a responsive obedience can only occur as a result of humility, and that humility is provided by the work of the Holy Spirit and allows for submission to God's will. Apart from the Spirit, we can do nothing. Obedience can be defined as to hear God's word and act accordingly or to hear or listen in a state of submission. You see, God has spoken in the scriptures. And ultimately, a person's obedient response to God's word is a response of trust or faith. Disobedience, on the other hand, to God's word comes from a sinful heart, a heart that will not trust God. Obedience comes from a heart that trusts the Lord. If God's people obey him, they find the blessings that he yearns to give. 
God's best. If they disobey, believers receive necessary discipline. No, no, you may say, whoa, Gilbert, just a minute. That sounds an awful lot like prosperity gospel to me. No. God promises blessings to his children. Go read Ephesians chapter 1. However, when we disobey, there will be discipline. Our sins are forgiven, but he will discipline his children. Sometimes he disciplines them through the negative consequences of sin. Ultimately, however, God expects obedience, perhaps like any parent does, of a child that they love. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15 makes this point. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Notice that this passage directs us to be ready for action, like obedient children, and resisting our former lusts. Like the real man that Joseph was, obedience required readiness for action and the rejection of passivity. Scripture as a whole shows us that obedience leads to God's best for our lives. The challenge is that our view of best and God's view of best might differ a bit. You see, trials may be best as they lead to growth and true reliance on the Holy Spirit and God's provision. James chapter 1 discusses the differences between trials and temptations that lead to sin. James explains that trials have a purpose and are used by God to grow us into who he wants us to become. Whereas temptation comes from a heart of lust leading to sin which cannot come from God. While Scripture calls us to obedience, our best example of obedience is that of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to obedience to his Father's will, obedience to the point of death on a cross. Joseph's humble submission allowed for his obedience to the will of God. Yeah, that's great, Gilbert. Jesus was obedient to God. Heck, he was God. Joseph was righteous and obedient to a vision of an angel, But when was the last time you saw an angel? Well, between my bride, Sherry, and my daughter, Corin, I feel like I'm around them all the time. But I digress. In all seriousness, here's the deal. We are called to the same humble submission and obedience that Joseph was called to, but it's simply not in us. We simply aren't capable of obedience on our own. We don't see visions of angels to guide and direct us, but Jesus made a promise to us. As Jesus is explaining his upcoming betrayal and that he must go away, he tells the disciples and us, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Wow. A helper 
that will be in us and with us forever. You see, it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can humbly submit to God's perfect plan for our lives. We simply can't do it on our own. God's gift to us was righteousness and he provided, that he provided through Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. And his victory over death is evidenced by his resurrection. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, our position before God is righteous. This position of righteousness allows the community and relationship with the Holy Spirit, which directs us to be righteous through our service and love toward others. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and, not, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, many of us have this verse memorized. We think about it often, but do we truly think about what it means? You see, God's grace saved us. His grace is a gift, one that's freely given and not earned. It has nothing to do with us or what we do, but as God's children who have accepted the gift of salvation, we are called to obedience, obedience to his will, obedience to a will that sets us apart to do his work, God's work, which he prepared beforehand. Do you understand that we're here to work? Do you understand that we're not part of the body of Christ to be a parasite? taking from the body, being entertained by the body, living off the body. We were created to love and serve and care for one another. We were created to do his work by the power of the Holy Spirit. We spend so much time in our evangelical community focused on the acceptance of the gift. Now listen, obviously, I would never minimize the gift. But what next? You see... We've been commissioned to glorify God and make disciples. Why? So that the disciples can glorify God and do his work. But how do we know when it's time to act and do? The answer lies in the Holy Spirit. He will guide us and direct us if we are attentive to God's will. So in closing, Joseph had a righteous character. The righteousness or spiritual maturity of Joseph serves as an example that our submission to God and the Holy Spirit is provided to us based on our faith in Jesus Christ. We must recognize our position of righteousness purified by his blood shed on our behalf. Our recognition of our position of righteousness leads to a movement toward righteous action. Joseph had an attentive heart. Our ability to do good works is dependent upon our ability to follow the urging of the Holy Spirit. Our desire to be righteous leads to a heart of attentiveness to God and ultimately God's will. That can only take us to a place of humility and submissiveness to the urging of the Spirit. But how do we know how we're doing? I believe we've been given a barometer. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5:22 to 26. For me personally, when my heart or life doesn't exude the fruits of the Spirit, I'm off base, and I'm in desperate need of time with my Savior. 
When this happens, and it happens more than I care to admit, my selfishness has dulled my ability to be attentive to the Spirit and His guidance and direction. The only remedy is time and fellowship with Him who loves us and gave Himself for us. Joseph humbly submitted to God's will and obedience. The humility and gentleness of Joseph serves us as a great example that obedience begins with humility and submission to God. This humility comes from the Spirit. Pride and anger are outward signs of a heart that is not obedient or submissive. As we submit to God's will, the individual parts of the body of Christ will work together for God's purpose, leading to the beautiful picture of unity described in Ephesians 4. This Christmas... Let's take time to truly remember and honor the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's also recognize the character and obedience of Joseph, the righteous man, so that perhaps we might become more obedient by the Spirit ourselves. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, the Dindies are going to come and share our Advent devotional with us. So pray with me, please. Father, Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation through your son, Jesus. We recognize that we did not earn this gift. And Lord, we know that you have us here for a purpose. We know that we've been called to obedience. And ultimately, that obedience will lead us to the ability to do the work that you've prepared beforehand. Thank you for the illustration of Joseph, for his righteous character, his attentive heart, and his humble submission in obedience. Lord, give us the strength through your spirit to act. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your son, for his life, death, and resurrection, and the gift of life that you've called us to. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen.